0: Stem Cell Science is changing medicine and our understanding of human development. Learn more with the Stem Cell Channel. Visit
1: uctv.tv slash stemcell.
2: Today we're going to be talking about Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's disease. And I have two special guests. Uh, The first one is going to be Doug Galasco. He's a neurologist. He's heavily involved with uh, the UCSD Uh, Shilin Marcos Alzheimer's Disease Research Center, ADRC. Um, Doug has been the director um, and now he's serving as associated director of the center with an outstanding leadership of this very important program here in our community. So in clinical practice, uh, he provides care for patients with memory and cognitive disorders including Alzheimer's disease, dementia, with liver bodies and frontotemporal dementia. So he works at the UCCD Memory Disorders Clinic. He's also a staff physician at the VA Medical Center here in La Jolla. So Doug Glasgow has contributed to several clinical trials. Um, he also contributed to biomarker research. This is including analysis of uh, CSF and blood tests to screen uh, for markers for Alzheimer's disease, for example. Uh, he's also involved in other therapeutic research. Um, for Alzheimer's and other related disease. He has authored hundreds of scientific articles, book chapters, and he's the co-editor of the Journal of Alzheimer's Research in Therapy. So he has uh, received many uh, research funding uh, from NIH, including from the National Institute on Aging, uh, States of California, the Alzheimer's Association, Michael J. Fox Foundation, uh, Alzheimer's Disease Drug Discovery Foundation, and, and many others. So he has been an investigator in numerous industry-funded clinical trials. So he's our first guest. Our second guest is our local hero, Larry Goldstein. So Larry is a distinguished professor in both uh, Department of uh, Cellular and Molecular Medicine and Department of Neurosciences here at UCSD School of Medicine. He's currently the director of uh, the Sanford Consortium for Regenerative Medicine. So early this year, He was appointed to be on the uh, board of the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine, CERN. So we are all very grateful that um, he accepted to be on board. So Larry has used to wear many hats. Uh, He's a cell biologist, a geneticist, and a neuroscientist. Uh, He worked with many colleagues to launch the UCSD stem cell program, uh, the Sanford Consortium for Regenerative Medicine, and the Sanford Stem Cell Clinical Center. I have no idea how he done that at the same time. Um, He has received um, the Public Service Award from the American Society of Cell Biology and has had a public policy fellowship named for him by the International Society of Stem Cell Research. Uh, He's a member of the American Academy of Arts and Science. And uh, last year, he was named a member of the prestigious National Academy of Science. So Larry has also done Tremendous amount of work on the basic uh, science, um, mostly focusing on the molecular mechanisms of intracellular movement and the role of transport defects in neurodegenerative diseases. Um, He then turned more into human pluripotent stem cells to create models and technologies to discover new disease therapies and testing disease mechanisms using um, pluripotent stem cells. So over the years, you can see that uh, he has moved from basic research in genetics and cell biology to research on Alzheimer's disease to the point where uh, he has been doing now translational studies and we hope that some of them will lead to clinical trials. So we're gonna hear more from him soon. Uh, He was also awarded um, many, um, uh, he has many interesting awards, including like scientist of the year, lifetime achievement, um, and I mentioned the ISSCR Fellowship Program that was named uh, on, 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 on his behalf. So we're going to start by hearing from uh, Doug first. Uh, so welcome, uh, Doug Galasco.
1: Thank you very much, Alison. Um, it's a great pleasure to be here today. And um, I'm going to give you some background and introduction about um, a clinical perspective on Alzheimer's disease. And um, I will cover some of the basics of Alzheimer's as well as some of the clinical and translational research directions we're involved in. Um, I have some disclosures which are listed on this slide. I consult for a number of companies and this is my research funding. Um, So before we talk about Alzheimer's disease, uh, let's start by talking about dementia. Um, Dementia is a clinical syndrome, and it covers a host of different conditions with many causes. The formal definition is that it is a set of conditions resulting in acquired intellectual decline that is severe enough to interfere with somebody's social or occupational performance. When we test somebody with dementia, we are able to demonstrate that they have impaired cognitive abilities in areas such as memory, judgment or reasoning, language, visuospatial abilities, or calculation. And there should be an absence of delirium. In other words, the patient um, or person should be aware and conscious of what is going on. So clearly, a lot of different things could meet this description. And if we think about different causes of dementia in the elderly, um, this is one summary of a number of different kinds of studies Um, Alzheimer's disease is the most common cause, but it's not the only cause. Vascular dementia, vascular changes in the brain, um, strokes, mini strokes, and things like that may cause pure dementia or may contribute together with Alzheimer's disease to the clinical picture. Dementia with Lewy bodies is a relative of Parkinson's disease and sometimes contributes to dementia all on its own, or it can accompany Alzheimer's disease. And then these other small pieces of the chart relate to rarer disorders, but nonetheless important ones, frontotemporal dementia, other kinds of unusual sorts of dementias, some of which um, are um, transmissible or due to genetic or other disorders. So let's focus a little more closely on Alzheimer's disease. The pathology that was first described by Dr. Alzheimer's consisted of two kinds of problems or lesions that we could see under the microscope. One of these are plaques, which occur outside of nerve cells. And plaques, we now know, are due to the accumulation and aggregation of a protein called amyloid beta protein, or A-beta. Tangles are the other uh, marker of Alzheimer's disease, and they kind of um, look like what a tangle would conceivably look like, they consist of clumps or aggregates of a protein called tau, and they occur within nerve cells, not on the outside. So that's the basics of Alzheimer's disease. But in fact, if we study the brains of people who die with dementia, we often see associated pathology. Um, Some sort of vascular pathology may be present in as many as 60% of people. Lewy bodies may be um, present in up to 20%. And another protein called TDP43 can form aggregates or clumps in about 5 to 20% of people with um, what we thought of as being Alzheimer's disease. So the overall picture can be a little more complicated, but um, before we can make progress in all of these different conditions, we probably should focus on the basic abnormalities or as much as we understand about pure Alzheimer's disease on its own. From a clinical perspective, if we think about cognition and function as being things that can be readily measured, there are some changes that occur during normal brain aging. Um, They are measurable and they are relatively mild. Somebody who is going to develop dementia doesn't start off one day waking up with dementia. They start out with normal cognition and function, and over time, they gradually progress to develop um, mild condition called mild cognitive impairment, where there may be subtle impairment of memory or other um, aspects of cognition, but the person can generally function in day-to-day life. And with progression, they may develop dementia. Under the surface, plaques, tangles and vascular disease are developing. And so as you can see, they've been developing all along for years in somebody who is later going to materialize to have MCI or dementia. And we're able to now detect these and we can now think of somebody who actually has normal cognitive and functional abilities as having preclinical dementia. Um, So there have been moves to try to define Alzheimer's disease as a biological entity by actually measuring these abnormal proteins. And um, this was one conception of many years of work in which the idea is that if we're able to define amyloid pathology and TAR pathology um, and some of their consequences, which would be neurodegeneration or changes that are happening to nerve cells and their connections, if all three of these are present, then this is clearly Alzheimer's disease. If both of these amyloid and TAR are present without neurodegeneration, there may be some Alzheimer pathological changes without necessarily the full-blown picture. There may be other kinds of pathologies. And then cognitive impairment can occur or can be absent, depending on um, the stage, the staging of the pathology. So can we actually bring this to life and not be reduced to simply looking at brains under the microscope? And the answer is, over the last decade, there have been some exciting research breakthroughs in biomarkers to be able to map this amyloid tau and neurodegeneration framework. So if we think of plaques and tangles, we actually have ways to measure these in the brain in living people. We can measure plaques through doing a PET scan, which can detect the amyloid buildup, or we can measure the spinal fluid that surrounds the brain. Um, We can do a lumbar puncture and measure levels of CSF amyloid beta protein. We can now measure the accumulation of tau by doing a tau PET scan, and then there are many ways to look at the impact of these on the brain. Um, So this bottom slide shows um, a a brain of somebody who died with normal cognition versus Alzheimer's. You can clearly see that there are differences. There is atrophy or shrinkage, and we can detect these through MRI, through um, a kind of PET scan called an FDG or fluorodeoxy glucose PET scan, which looks at regional glucose use, or we can try to measure biochemical effects of um, damage to the brain, again, in cerebrospinal fluid. Here are some examples of um, what these might look like. These are a series of amyloid PET scans um, taken from a number of different people. This would be a negative scan in someone with normal cognition, A positive scan in someone with normal cognition illustrating the point that the pathology begins to build up long before the clinical picture. Here is someone with MCI with a negative amyloid PET scan so their MCI probably is not caused by Alzheimer's disease. Um, Here is MCI with a positive PET scan, MCI with a markedly positive PET scan and Alzheimer's disease dementia. So we know that amyloid PET scans detect plaques and they become positive more than 10 years before the onset of symptoms. And about 30% of people over the age of 70 have a positive amyloid PET scan. So clearly, this would be something that we could use in um, diagnosis and therapy. Tau PET imaging has been a somewhat more recent development. And um, Tau tends to spread through the brain along um, various anatomical pathways. Um, This illustrates a series of different top head scans from um, people across the spectrum of Alzheimer's disease, starting off with someone who is clinically normal. Some of the top head agents bind a little bit non-specifically to the brain. So this is just background binding. Um, This would be one of the earliest stages where some of the memory vulnerable circuits are starting to show some binding. Cognition is still normal. Um, Again, someone with normal cognition with a bit more tau buildup, here is someone with MCI, with um, more extensive tau pathology affecting the temporal lobe, um, higher buildup but still MCI, and more extensive tau that's spread throughout the brain that can be detected. So again, um, tar would is a helpful tool potentially in diagnosis and to evaluate outcomes of therapy. Um, there are different ways of looking at MRIs, and we have ways to digitize the brain and measure how big things um, may be. So this is a comparison of someone who is was cognitively normal versus Alzheimer's, um, looking at areas of the brain and color coding the cortex and some of the structures deep within the brain. And clearly you can see that there's a difference. There is shrinkage and atrophy. There is enlargement of fluid spaces within the brain in someone with Alzheimer's disease. Cerebrospinal fluid allows us to look at brain biochemistry and to actually dig quite deeply. So if we look at the basic biomarkers, which would be amyloid and tau, um, starting off with amyloid, we can measure the amyloid beta protein, the one that accumulates in the brain in plaques, but here we're um, trying to detect something that isn't getting into CSF. So a particular form of the amyloid beta protein called A-beta-42 accumulates in the brain in Alzheimer's disease and therefore less of it escapes into the CSF. So if we look at people who have had CSF analyses and amyloid PET scans, if you have a positive amyloid PET scan, you're accumulating amyloid in the brain, CSFA beta 42 is low. If you have a negative amyloid PET scan, in general, CSFA beta 42 is high. Um, In fact, the CSFA beta 42 may be more sensitive. It may start to decrease before the PET scan becomes positive. Um, so tau is this other protein that builds up within nerve cells, and we don't see tangles in the CSF because they can't get out of nerve cells. However, we see fragments of the tau protein, and this is a study that actually characterized all sorts of different fragments. Um, we can set up particular kinds of assays to measure specific fragments, and in general, levels of tau or um, different forms of tau called tau are increased in CSF in Alzheimer's disease. So this is um, a helpful suite of diagnostic tools, but it's inconvenient to have a PET scan or to undergo a lumbar puncture. So is there any perspective about trying to develop blood tests? And the big challenge here is, can we detect proteins that originated in the brain um, were detected in the CSF, for example, but actually at pretty low levels, and now they're getting into the blood, and they're being diluted, and the liver and the kidney are trying to get rid of them. So we know that levels of A-beta and tau in plasma are extremely low. And for the longest time, we couldn't show anything meaningful. Um, in the last few years, new assays using sensitive methods have been developed. And there's been a remarkable burgeoning set of publications showing us how we can use blood to measure amyloid beta protein, tau, and phospho-tau, and some other proteins of interest. I'll show you just a little data in this area. Um, one of the forms of tau is called phosphotar-217, and this is one of several published studies. Um, in this study, people had undergone lumbar punctures while they were, uh, at least undergone blood draw while they were alive, and their brains were um, examined at autopsy. Um, these were people in orange with non-Alzheimer diagnosis, so no Um, real tangles showing up um, at post-mortem. These were people with Alzheimer's disease with different degrees of tangle accumulation and buildup. And in general, the more Alzheimer tau pathology in the brain, the higher plasma phospho tau was. Um, On the right, there's an illustration showing people who are cognitively normal or didn't have Alzheimer's. um, And these were levels of plasma tau, barely detectable, but it was detectable nonetheless, And these are people along the Alzheimer's spectrum, MCI, and people with Alzheimer's dementia, showing that there are increases in the level of this blood biomarker, and people with non-Alzheimer kinds of disorders, um, some of these rather uncommon brain disorders that cause dementia, but they do not bump up tau. So um, plasma P tau 217 is both sensitive and specific for Alzheimer's. And so we have the promise of a suite of plasma biomarkers that are going to be able to help us enormously with diagnosis and therapy in future. Um, <clears throat> another study on plasma ptar 217 for example, showed that measuring um, this biomarker, this is in living people um, over a period of years, showed that if you happened to have an amylo- a positive amyloid biomarker, so you were accumulating amyloid in your brain, PTAR-217 actually increased over time, even if you were cognitively normal, um, clearly to a greater extent in people who had a diagnosis of MCI, and in those who converted from MCI to Alzheimer's disease. So again, we could imagine using this to try to track progression over time. So we have a very nice suite of emerging biomarkers. How do we apply these to trying to understand and make a difference to Alzheimer's disease? So this is a very sort of 30,000 feet picture of why do people develop Alzheimer's. And there are a number of factors, and putting words to them doesn't mean we understand them fully, but in general, Alzheimer's has something to do with genetics, the aging process, and a number of factors that we call environment, but that involve things like lifestyle and health. Um, Here's a snapshot of some of the genes that have been involved in Alzheimer's disease, um, it's a complicated-looking diagram, but I'll break it down into a few takeaways. There are some rare genes that, um, if they are abnormal, have an extremely high risk of causing Alzheimer's disease. And they've taught us a lot about the disease, and we've actually developed cellular and animal models using these genes. They're called presenilin 1, presenilin 2, and APP. Um, there are some intermediate risk genes. Um, the e 4 gene is probably the most common. If you have two copies, you have an intermediate lifetime risk of Alzheimer's disease. And then there are a bunch of low risk genes. Some of them are pretty unusual or rare, but they may teach us something about mechanisms of disease. Some of them are more common ApoE, And there is a host of other genes that have been discovered more recently that collectively um, impact on Alzheimer's risk, although to a very small degree, But again, um, putting all of these genes together may teach us about some of the mechanisms that underlie Alzheimer's disease. Um, What about environment? So it's a really complicated thing to try to study. And if we think about the environment as being a host of conditions that either make brain health better or worse, um, a number of people have tried to summarize um, decades of work in the area. Um, The Lancet Journal has put together a commission of experts who've delivered several reports to try to estimate whether there are factors in early life, midlife, or late life that could have an impact on the lifetime risk of dementia, and maybe we could do something about some of these. Without going into all of the details, some of these certainly are um, things that are modifiable or actionable, and in particular, vascular risk. Factors like obesity, high blood pressure, um, increased cholesterol, diabetes, and smoking are things that can be addressed and modified. Physical inactivity can be countered, and there are many studies looking at activity or exercise to try to improve brain health. Hearing loss and social isolation may um, have a small impact um, individually, but they are things that are quite common, and so they are things that, in principle, it would be worth trying to do something about. So again, these are factors that have come out of a number of studies. Whether attacking them makes a huge difference or not um, remains to be seen. Um, but they certainly are worth investigating. Um, so if we're going to try and make a difference to Alzheimer's, we need treatment. And at the moment, this is a rather embarrassing list um, of more than 35 years of work that have led to a small number of medications being approved by the FDA for use in Alzheimer's disease. Um, these include the cholinesterase inhibitors, um, donepezil, aricept, galantamine, and rivastigmine, and then more moderately, Um, to severe Alzheimer patients, an NMDA antagonist called Memantine um, has been approved. For all of these medications, there are benefits that have been shown in clinical trials, but the benefits are small. These medications may help to stabilize cognition, um, sometimes only temporarily, and none of them slows disease progression. So the question is, how do we use our knowledge that um, has been accrued over many years and decades of work about mechanisms and biomarkers to develop new and effective disease-modifying treatment. So if one had to try to put together um, a summary of pathways related to amyloid and tau, and these are not the only pathways of interest, but these are the ones that have received the most attention, um, perhaps these can give us some treatment targets. So again, through lots of research, we know that the A-beta or amyloid protein is produced by a bunch of enzymes that cut up a parent protein called APP. Um, Normally, we're very good at getting rid of the A-beta protein from the brain. Um, It can be broken down by enzymes, taken up by different cells. It gets out through the CSF through blood vessels and eventually appears into the blood. But in Alzheimer's, something goes wrong, Um, either on the production side or the clearance side, and it aggregates, forms um, fibrils and eventually plaques. And somehow these promote toxicity, and there are a number of different terms I've um, put out here, excitability, neuroinflammation with astrocytes and microglial cells responding, and eventually neurodegeneration, and tangles are one of the possible outcomes. So in terms of where we're at with um, a lot of research and a number of different organized clinical trials, some of the large-scale efforts have involved trying to decrease A-beta production, Some of the drugs that have been used are called base inhibitors or gamma secretase inhibitors or modulators. And then clearance has been very difficult to deal with. The main method that people have tried is to deliver antibodies that attack the or that bind to the um, amyloid beta protein. Um, These either try to bind to large amounts of different forms of A beta, or maybe to bind exclusively to forms that are aggregating and maybe forming toxicity. Maybe that will make a difference. And then there are a number of um, efforts to try and deliver therapy aimed at tau. Again, many of these have involved antibodies. Um, So I'll show you a summary or snapshot of a number of clinical trials that have either been recently completed or are in progress. Regarding amyloid antibodies, um, there have been therapeutic efforts for probably 20 years by now, These are some of the more recent trials. Um, Solanuzumab is an antibody that binds to all forms of the um, A beta protein, and it has had a mixed history. It does decrease CSF levels of A beta, and um, it's currently being studied um, after it didn't work in um, some early trials. Um, It's being studied at a very high dose in some prevention trials. There are a number of different antibodies listed here, all of which bind to abnormal forms of the A-beta protein, bind to aggregates and um, are aimed at removing them from the brain. All of these have undergone um, either phase one, two, or some in some cases, phase three trials, typically in people with mild Alzheimer's disease. And these have been shown to be able to reduce amyloid buildup in the brain by doing PET scans. So at least they do hit a target and they do have an impact. Whether they make a difference on clinical progression Um, is still under a little debate. Um, Aducanumab has shown some hint of signals and the data has been filed with the FDA. Some of these other trials actually also have shown um, a clinical signal from trials and um, how meaningful this is will um, remain to be determined. Decreasing production has not had a good track record. Base inhibitors have been developed. Um, This is one of the key enzymes that cuts the um, A-beta protein from its parent protein. And five different drugs went into trials, and all of them worked beautifully at decreasing CSF levels of A-beta protein. However, there must have been something else that these um, drugs were doing. In every one of these trials, there was a faster cognitive decline in people on drug treatment arm than in placebo. And so so this um, avenue has been discontinued. Um, Tau therapeutics are much newer, and um, antibodies are being tested in a number of different studies. Um, There are at least five different antibodies in trials. They have been shown to be able to decrease CSF tau, but of course, the CSF tau is a set of fragments and not necessarily the toxic form of tau. Um, One or two of these have read out in phase two studies as being negative, but a lot of therapeutics are in play. Um, Getting an infusion of an antibody every month is very expensive, And so there actually are several attempts to do active immunization, kind of the equivalent of what we would do for COVID, um, only um, giving people an antigen to immunize them against tau. Um, There are two reported phase one to two trials, and they have resulted in anti-tau antibodies in a reasonable titer. And we will see what happens as um, patients are followed further over time. So if we had to try and make predictions about where um, Alzheimer's therapeutics is going to go, some of the predictions are that we need to try and figure out who to treat and when to start treatment. It is likely that anti-amyloid treatment may be most effective the earlier that we start, so maybe in a prevention type of study before people have symptoms. If we are trying to target tau, perhaps we could start a little later, and if we're trying to do other things, um, we may be able to start a little later on too. So some of the messages, and these have been very expensive messages learned over decades, are that we need to think about starting treatment as early as possible. We may need to think about combination therapy as we um, continue to develop novel approaches. Um, But we have um, an exciting suite of biomarkers that we can now use to help us to conduct and interpret clinical trials. Um, So I'll stop there. That's a um, fairly rapid overview of an enormous amount of um, research, and we will come back and and take questions and have a discussion later. Thank you very much. Thank you, Doug. That was a
2: fantastic summary. Uh, I'm amazed how uh, much information you were able to pack. So the next talk is uh, Larry Goldstein.
0: So uh, Dr. Glasgow just gave you a really terrific summary of, some of the basics of what we think about Alzheimer's disease and what we've observed. And of course, you can see uh, from Doug's talk that one of the biggest problems we have is not being able to describe the disease. It's been described very well, but we desperately need drugs that are effective. And what I want to tell you about in the next 20 or 25 minutes is how we've been using stem cell technology to try to search for different types of Alzheimer's disease drug candidates, uh, different from the types that uh, Doug has uh, already beautifully told you about. So just to give you the, the quick uh, recap of what you just heard, uh, Alzheimer's is common, progressive, incurable. There's only a few treatments that are known and they have minimal and temporary effects. I do wanna stress something that Doug alluded to uh, in passing. And that is a very important part of Alzheimer's disease in addition to the plaques and tangles is that the connections between brain cells uh, are lost at early stages of disease. And th- these are the so-called synapses. These are the connections between brain cells and these are lost uh, early in disease. And then of course, eventually, as you just heard there's massive brain cell death uh, in particular death of neurons. Now, the major hypothesis in the field is the so-called amyloid cascade hypothesis and shown uh, diagrammatically here uh, based on these images of brain pathology. The notion is that these amyloid plaques, which as you heard are composed of the A-beta fragment uh, of protein, these amyloid plaques are thought to lead to the neurofibrillary tangles And these tangles, as you just heard, and we'll have more to say about this, are composed of a modified version of the tau protein. And that modification is what uh, in the field we refer to as a phosphorylation event. And for simplicity, I'm just going to refer to this modified form of tau as p-tau. And Uh, The question ultimately is, what is controlling the amyloid plaque uh, and A-beta formation? That is, what's happening early to lead to these changes? And similarly, how uh, do these plaques and A-beta peptides lead to these uh, tangles containing uh, P-tau? And of course the important question that you know all of us wonder about is what's ultimately the right drug target? And I'll tell you about some efforts to get a handle on that. Now, what I've done here is uh, in a sense, redrawn the conventional uh, proposal for how Alzheimer's disease develops. And I'll refer to it as the single pathway proposal. It is the simplest possible way of looking at how uh, the defects in the disease are caused. And what this imagines is that either some sort of altered biochemistry and Dr. Golasco gave you a few examples of that or rare genetic mutations. uh, And uh, Dr. Golasco mentioned one of those uh, presenillin mutations or other genetic and environmental risk factors such as traumatic brain injury or APOE or the others these are all thought uh, and proposed in this simple single pathway proposal to lead to formation of amyloid plaques made of this A-beta fragment. And that this collection of uh, uh, plaques in turn leads to modified tau or p-tau, and then neurofibrillary tangles. And then ultimately this all leads to the loss of connections and ultimately neuronal death, uh, characteristic of Alzheimer's disease. But there's a zoo of other possibilities uh, in the literature and in experiments that have been done on this disease that is in fact uh, rather complicated. And we can think of these as uh, multiple pathway proposals. And to be honest, this is often the way biology uh, and neuroscience uh, in fact usually work is that there are lots of alternative ways for getting from one event to the other. And so what this multiple pathway idea here uh, imagines is that the factors and changes that can lead to elevation in a beta and amyloid plaques can also lead to other types of neuronal misbehavior. And I'll show you a couple of examples of those uh, in a few moments. And that either of these can lead to the formation of phosphorylated P-tau and tangles and all of these things can lo- lead to the loss of connections uh, characteristic of disease. And of course, you can see here in the middle, there's even a view that, you know, the plaques and uh, and the A-beta uh, uh, proteins can lead to neuronal misbehaviors, which in turn lead to tau tangles. And you can see how this can become uh, fairly complicated fairly quickly. But I I unfortunately have to assure you that biology is frequently uh, this complicated. And part of our tasks as scientists and clinicians is to understand and dissect how these kinds of pathways uh, work and what ultimately leads to disease pathology. Now, we've taken a somewhat different approach to this problem. And let me just uh, introduce it to you quickly and then give you a definition. And the notion is this, plaques and tangles are, in fact, relatively late events in disease. People frequently don't develop them until their 50s, 60s, or 70s, as you just heard from Dr. Glasgow, or they certainly don't become abundant until people are in their later elderly stages of life. But it's hard to believe that there aren't very early changes that lead to the formation of the proteins and modified proteins that ultimately form plaques and tangles. And there's quite a bit of evidence in the literature that in fact, there are a number of early changes happening early in life, possibly even as early as fetal development that lead to these pathological changes that don't read out until very late in life in people's uh, 50s, 60s, or 70s. And what you really wanna find in a way, uh, you can think of as follows. If, If there's been a plane crash and you want to know what caused the plane to crash, you can, I suppose, and this is initially done, examine the pattern of wreckage on the ground. But of course, the pattern of wreckage on the ground doesn't tell you what went wrong in the plane while it was still flying. Were the pilots drunk? Did they stop paying attention? Did the navigation system break? Who the heck knows? Lots of things can lead to a plane crash. And so in the case of a plane crash, what you're looking for is the black box, which records the early events that were abnormal in the plane that led to it crashing. Well, what we're all looking for in a sense is the black box of Alzheimer's disease. We wanna know what happens early that leads to cells in the brain and neurons in particular uh, starting to behave abnormally, leading to loss of connections and then cell death. So this is where we've turned to stem cell technology to try to generate human brain cells in the lab. And by the way, we want to have human brain cells because while a great deal of work has been done in mouse So called models or mouse versions of Alzheimer's disease, there are two points. One, we are not just big mice. You may have noticed that last time you looked in the mirror. Humans are not just big mice. And second, um, mice actually don't develop true Alzheimer's disease. And so treatments that work in the mouse don't necessarily work in the human, and that's uh, true for lots of diseases, and Alzheimer's disease has been no exception. And so what we want to have are human brain cells in the lab so that we can study early stages where genetic mutations and other uh, risk factors that one can import into the lab can be studied in the very earliest stages before plaques and tangles actually form, which of course are the late stages of disease. And so this is where stem cells come in. And I'll just give you a very quick, super simplified definition of stem cells. These are cells that can divide. Cells grow by dividing to make more cells. These are cells that can divide to make more stem cells. So they're self replenishing, but they can also, when you give them the correct biochemical signals, give rise to all sorts of different specialized cell types And if you give them the right biochemical signals, they can form different cell types in the brain, including neurons. And so there's one other wrinkle in this methodology, and that is because of the pioneering work of Shinya Yamanaka, it has now become routine in any uh, lab uh, in the La Jolla area or elsewhere uh, around the world to take... A sample of skin cells from either a normal individual or an individual who has a genetic form of Alzheimer's disease. You can convert that skin cell into a stem cell, and those stem cells have the genetic architecture, that is the DNA, from the person you got the skin cells from. So it can either be a control, non-demented person, or it can be a person with a hereditary form of Alzheimer's disease. And so when you make those stem cells into neurons, uh, shown diagrammatically here, they can either be controls, that is uh, genomes, people that didn't develop disease, or people that developed uh, these forms of Alzheimer's disease. And then one can take these uh, neurons or other brain cells, for example, but neurons in this case, And you can measure the proteins that are typical of Alzheimer's disease, either A-beta or P-tau. And as I'll show you momentarily, in fact, in the neurons that carry rare genetic changes that cause hereditary Alzheimer's disease, you indeed see elevated levels of A-beta and uh, P-tau that are produced by those cells. Now, one other point I want to make is this, diagram here is actually a realistic diagram of a neuron. Neurons are not just, you know, sort of a ball of, uh, or a soap bubble with uh, cellular constituents in it. They're very asymmetric cells. They have what's called a cell body shown here, which is the factory of the cell. It's where the DNA is and it's where most of the materials are produced and then they have this long structure that leads to connections to other cells, these are both simultaneously a wire and a a pipe. And that's because they can transmit electrical signals from the cell body to the connections to the synapse, but they're also a pipe through which lots of materials are moved to get to the synapse in order to support its normal function. And so these distances can be quite large In humans, they can be three to four feet or more in the case of the neurons that control the muscles in your toes, for example. And many of the neurons in the brain have very, very long versions of these uh, pipes and wires, uh, uh, the so-called axons of these cells. And so uh, what a student of mine, Mason Israel, did a number of years ago was again, plaques formed of A-beta, Tangles ultimately from P-tau, was to make stem cells and then neurons that either were control or had a rare genetic form of Alzheimer's disease. And you can see quite clearly the controls have a low level of A beta, and the uh, Alzheimer's mutations actually have quite a high level of A beta. And similarly, if you look at PTAu, same thing, controls are relatively low. Uh, Alzheimer mutations relatively high. And then, of course, the question you'd like to ask in this simplified system, at least, is, is a beta leading directly to p-tau in these early versions of Alzheimer's disease in a dish? And in fact, I won't drag you through the data. They're a little bit complex. But the point is, we've really been able to... uh, rule this version of uh, this kind of model out. And uh, Mason was able to show uh, convincingly in at least this human neuronal uh, version of disease that A-beta was not what's leading to P-tau. In fact, it turns out to be a precursor to A-beta. Now, there are some other interesting types of misbehavior that are seen in these uh, Alzheimer's mutant in the lab. And one uh, assay that uh, we developed for these cells is to take so-called tagged lipoproteins. You all have probably heard of lipoproteins, LDL or HDL, and the levels in the blood make a big difference to your cardiac and other health. It turns out that the brain does not get its lipoproteins from outside the brain. It synthesizes its own lipoproteins. Uh, And so we started to study how neurons internalize lipoproteins that are made from other cell types in the brain. And one way we could study it is to tag the lipoproteins with little molecules that give off light when you look at them in a special kind of microscope called a fluorescence microscope. And so I've colored them in in orange here to indicate that they're giving off orange light. They're usually really green or red, but who's counting? And neurons are capable of internalizing these lipoproteins when you apply them to the area of the cell body, they get inside the cell, and then some of them are transported, physically moved out through this part of the cell called an axon to the synapse. And the synapse actually requires quite a bit of uh, lipoprotein in order to function normally. And I'll just mention in passing, that lipoproteins often contain cholesterol. And we'll come back to that in a moment. And so here's what the data really looked like. This is an image in the microscope of an axon. You can see these little white spots in this case. Uh, those are the little fluorescent lipoprotein packages that have been tagged. And if you look at these genetic... Uh, mutation uh, bearing neurons, uh, you can just see by looking that there's quite a bit less of these little uh, white dots in the axons. And then if you count them, you can see controls are high, mutations are low. And in fact, what we can show is that there's a defect in the cell body in the ability to internalize these lipoproteins. And then there's a second defect in the ability of these lipoproteins to leave the cell body and to enter the axon for traffic down to the synapse. So there's quite a pronounced early defect in the internalization of materials in these neurons. This builds off of the groundbreaking work of Ralph Nixon back at NYU, who uh, working with uh, Ann Cataldo almost 20 years ago, first found this in uh, intact brains post-mortem, and uh, he and we have pushed ahead uh, based on those early data. Now, the other question you might want to know the answer to is, okay, that's all fine and good to catalog all the things that might be wrong with these cells. But what you'd really like is to uh, perhaps use these cells to find drugs. And so uh, we started that work uh, a few years ago. We took skin cells from a patient that had a different kind of genetic mutation in the APP gene that is the parent molecule to A-beta, created stem cells, made neurons, and then plated these neurons in so-called multi-well plates. So a little plate that's about uh, two inches by three to four inches uh, in size can hold 384 or even more, but we used 384 well plates. And each well has neurons in it, and then each well is treated with a different drug from a collection of every FDA-approved drug that we could lay our hands on. You wait five days, and then you measure p out. And what you can see here is this big morass of dots. So just think of it as uh, though each dot represents one drug treatment, and dots that are uh, clustered here in the center. That's where drugs that have no effect are. Some drugs lower pTau. Some drugs raise pTau. Um, I'm not going to tell you about all the different drug candidates we found, but there was one very intriguing candidate drug that we uh, discovered called efavirins, uh, originally uh, developed for uh, HIV, where it uh, interferes with the viruses. Uh, uh, Polymerase that makes the viral nucleic acid and genetic material that is, uh, and efavirenz lowers uh, levels of p tau uh, in these neurons in in very striking ways. And so the question then uh, is, how does it do that? Um, one of the things uh, that came up very early is uh, there was previous biochemical work which suggested that efavirenz acted by stimulating the breakdown of cholesterol into 24-hydroxycholesterol that's then eliminated from the brain, you can see that the production of cholesterol is this incredibly complicated pathway of synthesis steps, branches, um, and then this rather simple step of elimination. Lots of drugs that are earlier in these pathways do in fact give some changes in p interestingly, pointing to some role of brain cholesterol in controlling p levels. And the question, of course, ultimately was, is cholesterol itself the actual target that leads to changes in P-tau? That is, is it cholesterol levels or something else that efavirans is doing? And through a whole long A series of biochemical experiments, Rick Vanderkant and Vanessa Langness working in my lab, figured out that efavirans, in fact, is acting uh, to reduce P-tau by acting at this step that was previously reported. It does catalyze the removal of cholesterol by stimulating the production of 24-hydroxycholesterol by cholesterol breakdown. Uh, but in fact, it turns out through a series of biochemical experiments, what Rick and Vanessa were able to show is that efavirans does reduce or does stimulate cholesterol breakdown, but the storage form of cholesterol called cholesterol ester circled here replenishes the lost cholesterol. And ultimately, it is the level of this storage form of cholesterol that controls the levels of uh, phospho or or pTAL. Now, one thing you might wanna know is, well, this is uh, having an effect on cells or neurons growing in a dish. Of course, neurons in the brain are quite a bit more complicated than neurons in a dish. And of course, any drug treatment has to cross the blood brain barrier, not a simple uh, task for many different sorts of drugs. And so we wanted to know, would efavirenz work on a brain? Uh, And to do this, we took advantage of mice that make tangles in their brain in different regions, in the cortex and in other parts of the brain, such as the hippocampus. We did these experiments with Robert Rissman. And so you can treat these mice that make lots of tau tangles, either with a control vehicle or with efavirans. And what you can see, for example, here is that efavirans gives quite a pronounced drop in these mouse brains of tau tangles. And so the next step for us, and this is a project that we're working on with Rick Vanderkant and with Dr. Glasgow, is to raise the funding needed to put efavirans into human clinical trials, uh, figure out how it's working in an intact human, and then begin testing it on Alzheimer's patients. And that hopefully will happen in the next few years. And I at least am very optimistic about this, but there have been so many disappointments in this field, I can't let myself be too optimistic. So where does this leave us? So to wrap up, what I've told you here in this last part is we've got good evidence that the storage form of cholesterol in the brain, cholesterol ester, actually in other works uh, published by the Piculeva Lab, uh, is able to uh, control the level of amyloid, more cholesterol ester, uh, leads to more amyloid production. It also leads to an increase in the level of p-tau. We think through some other neuronal misbehavior that we haven't uh, identified as yet. And of course, in this multi-pathway model, uh, everything seems to influence everything uh, else, which by the way, is often how biology works. These are ultimately uh, systems that are sometimes referred to as homeostatic. And so if we go back to the original multiple pathway proposal, we can add uh, something to the altered biochemistry in disease, we think, and that is the levels of uh, storage forms of cholesterol in addition to genetic mutations and environmental risk factors. And then finally, I just want to give credit to the people who've done a lot of this uh, work over the years. Guys like me sit in our offices and try to be helpful in giving advice to the people who work in our laboratories. Uh, In particular, Vanessa Langness and Rick Vanderkant have been very involved in drug development. Grace Woodruff and Saul Reyna on uh, the internalization uh, work that I told you about. We owe a great deal of gratitude to patients that allowed us to get skin samples from them. Uh, By biopsy, uh, Dr. Galasco has helped us with that a great deal. And funding for this project has come from the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine, the state stem cell agency called CIRM, and of course, also the National Institutes of Health. And I will stop
2: there. That's fantastic, Uh, Larry. Thank you so much. I see some questions already. Uh, appear here. I'll try to summarize the ones that are common. Um, But uh, the first one is, uh, I think, is more related to uh, the genetics of Alzheimer's. Probably, Doug, you are the best one to answer that one. What are the chances uh, if, for example, my mom has Alzheimer's or died from Alzheimer's, what are the chances uh, that someone in the family will also develop Alzheimer's?
1: So, I think the answer to all of these questions is going to be, it's complicated. With regards to this question, if a member of your family, a first-degree relative, parent, sibling, had Alzheimer's, that increases your own chances a little bit. Um, But it may not be enough to worry about, and it may not be enough at this stage to know what to do about, other than to um, think about keeping your brain as healthy as possible and reduce some of those risk factors. The family histories we really worry about, and I think some of the later questions may deal with this, are when there are multiple people across generations who develop Alzheimer's disease, um, and um, in some of those rare genes, the ones that um, <clears throat> Dr. Goldstein mentioned have helped us develop animal models and things, um, in those situations, the age of onset can be between 30 and 45, which is, um, you know, quite catastrophic. Um, for those sorts of families. They are rare, but um, very important for our understanding and to do certain kinds of research. Yeah. I have a question regarding the
2: antibody treatment. Uh, If the antibodies are injected uh, in blood or in the CSF, uh, do they actually reach the brain and and, and reach the tau and and tangles there?
1: Uh, So that's a great question. And, um, and that's one of, the re- one of the many reasons why antibodies end up being super expensive for brain diseases. Um, they, they don't get into the brain very well, but a little bit does get in. And for the amyloid antibodies, enough seems to get in that if we give high doses, we're able to remove um, the amyloid to some extent um, with some of the newer antibodies to what it appears to be to quite a reasonable extent over time. Um, Tau is going to be a different question and a bigger challenge because tau is accumulating inside nerve cells. And so one might imagine that an antibody has to get into the brain and then it has to find the tau that's inside the nerve cells if that's where the abnormal forms of tau are doing their mischief. If there are some bits of tau that are escaping um, and communicating between nerve cells, maybe the antibodies can meet them there. But I think that's one of the bigger conceptual challenges for tau antibody therapy.
2: Okay. I have another one for you. Um, How strong is the association between Alzheimer's disease and inflammation?
1: Okay, not an easy. um, So there's inflammation and inflammation. (laughs) Um, So inflammation occurs in the brain, for example. And some of the cells that are unique to the brain, in particular, these things called astrocytes and microglia, um, contribute um, to inflammation in the brain. And sometimes this can be a good and necessary thing. Um, sometimes they may be taking care of um, a turnover. Um, we turn over a certain amount of membranes of nerve cells and synapses, and some of these microglia and astrocytes are helping to um, remove and clear them, but sometimes it can be a bad thing. And in Alzheimer's, there's some um, genetic and other evidence that suggests that microglia get turned on in some ways that can contribute to um, the pathology. Um, So inflammation, the way most of us think of it, actually occurs in the whole body. And that's a different question. Um, If you get a really severe infection um, somewhere in your bloodstream, does this do anything to Alzheimer's disease? Um, And the answer is, as long as whatever's going on doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier, then we don't know that there's a direct impact. Um, It probably isn't good to be going around with chronic inflammation or chronic infections or things like that in your body in general, because um, these can maybe deprive the brain of its optimal sources of glucose or other things, and um, so there are some associations between people who've had, who have Alzheimer's and then have a severe infection of some sort, um, get admitted to hospital, recover from the infection, and gee whiz, the Alzheimer's got worse. Um, and so we don't understand all of those mechanisms, but there are lots of potential things one could think of at play. Uh,
2: before we, we jump to Larry on more uh, science questions, I have another one on the clinical aspect and I think it's kind of related to the inflammation, if there are clinical trials uh, re, uh, respect to investigation drugs that prevent Alzheimer's?
1: Um, there certainly are. Um, and so if we think about it, if we wanted to do a clinical trial to prevent Alzheimer's, that sounds like a great, um, a great thing to aspire to. Um, but the answer is it's not easy. We can't round up a bunch of 65-year-old people and reliably predict who's going to get Alzheimer's and when they're going to get it. And for some of these folks, they may get Alzheimer's 10 years later. And we don't have have the time to do a 10-year or 15-year clinical trial. Um, So there are ways to try and enhance some of the prevention trials regarding late-onset Alzheimer's. But in fact, one of the most interesting prevention aspects has come from some of these rare families that have um, genes that can cause early onset Alzheimer's disease. And so at UCSD, we're part of one of these networks. There's an international network um, studying people with mutations in APP, precinct one, and two. And um, we're part of a group that are doing clinical trials. And some of the trials involve people who already have symptoms. But um, the idea is to try and do prevention trials because Here we can actually calculate if we take a family in which 10 people got Alzheimer's disease and the average age at which they got Alzheimer's was 40, um, we could round up a bunch of 35-year-olds, for example, um, or people within five or six years of the estimated age at onset, and we can do a lot of modeling and use biomarkers to give us insights that we just couldn't get from late-onset Alzheimer's disease. So there's a lot of exciting research going on in that area in prevention.
2: Very nice. Uh, Larry, I'll start with some of uh, the questions here. Um, Is there any correlation between the brain uh, cholesterol ester levels and APOE4? Uh,
0: Great question. And I think uh, this is going to be one of those questions where I'm going to have to just confess, we don't know. I think it's a terrific kind of question. It's something that follow-up experiments really need to be done on. Of course, part of what this question alludes to is that the the normal biological function of ApoE is to be a cholesterol carrier in brain lipoproteins. And so you might expect that there would be some connection between uh, the different genetic forms of ApoE, either the two allele, the three allele, or the four allele, and their ability to carry cholesterol or their effects on storage forms of cholesterol. And we just really don't know. There, there's a lot of work going on in this area. It's moving very quickly. So stay tuned. Uh,
2: there's another question about uh, the mouse treatment. Uh, how how the, uh, the drug Favirenz got into the brain? What, what was the root? And what dose did you use uh, compared to what would you use to treat humans? Is there equivalence here? <laughs> two, two excellent
0: questions. So first, how does it get into the brain? Well, actually, a lot of drugs do cross the blood-brain barrier. And efavirans is a drug that not only crosses the blood-brain barrier, it seems to accumulate in the brain. Uh, interestingly, It's used for uh, AIDS treatment sometimes. And one of the nasty side effects when it's used for uh, AIDS treatment is in fact neurotoxicity. Uh, We think that that may in fact be because it's messing with cholesterol levels in the brain uh, because it's used at very high concentrations in AIDS treatment relative to what we think would be effective for Alzheimer's disease. The question of whether the mouse dose is the same as a human dose or not is, is a hard one. There's an area called al- allometry or, or allometry, depending on how you want to pronounce it, that tries to estimate what's the equivalent dose of a drug, a nutrient, a whatever, for a mouse relative to a human. Because we're obviously much bigger. Our brains are bigger. There's, there's just all sorts of issues with dosing. We think based on some calculations that the dose we've been using in a mouse is way below the neurotoxic dose in humans. And that this is a dose that we want to take into clinical trials that we've, we've generated by calculation. So we think it'll be a low enough dose that it won't be toxic, but you just don't know until you do the experiment. And so this is why it's so important for us to get into trials.
2: Fair enough. Um, there is another question. Uh, this is coming from, from Joe Ecker. Uh, he said that uh, there must be data on cholesterol lowering and Alzheimer's progression. Is there any impact on folks that use statins, for example?
0: Yes. Okay. So this, <laughs> Dr. Colasco is laughing because we have gone round and round about this topic for, for quite some time. Um, there are some epidemiologic data that suggest that there is a statin effect. Uh, in some settings, but uh, a number of clinical trials that have been done prospectively with statins have been disappointing, but some of them have given biochemical changes when uh, proteins are measured in the CSF. One of the real complications is not just age and uh, condition of the brain when when the statins start, uh, but also Some statins cross the blood-brain barrier, some don't, and for some it's not even uh, particularly clear what level of penetration there is. And that has just really complicated the literature on this. I'll I'll also note, um, many people are aware that uh, statins frequently have side effects. And that's because statins acted, you may remember that complicated branched synthesis pathway I showed, um, there are branches off of the pathway and statins act at a very early step. And so all of the downstream steps are messed up and the side effect issues uh, in the brain may also be complicating things. So one of the reasons we like efavirans is that it's acting at a point very low in the synthesis pathway. In fact, we think it's in the degradation pathway. And so it's much nearer cholesterol than statins are.
2: Mm-hmm. And, uh, just a related question, in your mouse model, I'm assuming you didn't see any toxicity, but did you notice any cognitive improvement on on, on these treated animals?
0: These were simple pathology experiments. As you, as you know, Dr. Motri, uh, mouse behavioral experiments are uh, a significant uh, undertaking.
2: Got it. All right, this is for Doug. Um, this is an interesting one. Uh, why not use Down syndrome as an early
1: cohort of uh, Alzheimer's disease? Um, so that's a terrific question, and um, the answer is yes, um, but it's complicated. So Downs, people with Down syndrome have an extra copy of the APP gene on chromosome 21. They make more beta amyloid, and they invariably get deposits of plaques and tangles in their brains with age. Um, so one would imagine we could, you know, do clinical trials or study people with Down syndrome. The difficult thing is measuring cognition in people with Down syndrome, and measuring function is really difficult. And so, to do the clinical trials and come up with um, robust clinical measures and outcomes and endpoints is not at all easy. Um, so there have been some more recent initiatives to try and improve how people with Down's are assessed. And this includes things like doing brain MRI and um, you know, biomarkers of one sort and another, but um, in the absence of really having good clinical measures, it's going to be difficult to decide um, if whatever biochemical impact we have is actually helping um, a patient with Down syndrome or not. So there, there, you know, there are efforts in the area um, and kind of stay tuned is my response. Okay.
2: Okay. Um... Larry, is there a link between high cholesterol and frequency of Alzheimer's? I think Doug touched on that point.
0: Yeah, so so let me just do a little bit of cleanup on this. Um, so it's an excellent question. And it turns out that to the best of our knowledge and to the best of the data available, the brain and the bloodstream are two completely separate systems with respect to cholesterol synthesis, degradation, and use. In the bloodstream, cholesterol is synthesized in the liver. It's packaged into primarily low-density lipoproteins, LDL, and a little bit of HDL, and then it circulates. In the brain, the synthesis of cholesterol is probably happening in the microglia and the astrocytes, two support cells in the brain, and it's packaged into HDL primarily, not LDL, And so brain cholesterol is primarily in the HDL form, not the LDL form as happens in the blood. And as far as we know, there's just no correlation. Now, that said, there may well be genetic variation that leads to similar changes, for example, in cholesterol synthesis in cells of the liver and cells in the brain. Some of the enzymes are shared are used, the same enzymes are used in the livers in the brain. So it's a little unclear, and I'll just mention finally, it's a little hard to measure brain cholesterol levels uh, in a living uh, brain for obvious reasons.
2: Yeah. Uh, And I think when Doug mentioned about the environmental factors, this was probably like a multifactorial um, multifactorial list um, that includes high cholesterol. Yeah, got it.
1: Um, Right. So one one comment about, you know, when we think of environment and how many of the studies have been done, um, many of these are um, epidemiology population-based studies, and the outcome is dementia, not Alzheimer's disease. And so, you know, if you remember from one of my studies, dementia will include a lot of people who had strokes and vascular pathology and things like that. It may well be that um, some of those risk factors are going to help us to reduce the vascular damage in the brain, but not do anything to the Alzheimer pathology. Um, You know, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't go after these things. It just means that we should try to figure out what we're targeting.
2: I think you you two clarify it really well. Um, I think Larry would like this question. Um, Is the amyloid plague a byproduct of Alzheimer's disease as opposed to a cause of Alzheimer's disease? Uh,
0: and here we go. All right, <laughs> this this question is debated hotly at meetings, in labs, in hallways, in coffee shops, and uh, I think you're going to get you know three different answers from every uh, scientist or clinician you talk to about this. I personally think that uh, plaques are probably not the actual cause of the disease. Um, I think it's probably earlier events uh, caused by those genetic mutations and risk factors. Uh, There's some evidence for that point of view. For example, uh, a duplication of the APP gene actually has an abnormal neuronal phenotype during uh, fetal development. It's a very early change, and this appears to be related to processing of the protein. But that said... I don't actually think that having a head full of plaques is good for you, so it may not be the cause, but boy, it sure could be a complication. But I think Doug would have a
1: completely different view on this than what I just said. <laughs> um, I mean, I, th- I think I would be um, ambivalent, but um, along the, um, I take the point of view that it's hard to ignore amyloid, um, the genetics and the pathology and everything else. And it seems to be specific for Alzheimer's. So you don't, for example, have a stroke and then deposit amyloid around all of those damaged nerve cells. You don't have some other kind of brain pathology and then, you know, deposit amyloid as a reaction. Um, So, you know, it's not a a direct toxin. If you have a little bit of amyloid, um, that's not going to, as, as best we know, that's not going to even cause any kind of detectable clinical effect. So, you know, that's, the, um, that's where the debate gets a little bit tricky. Um, in a test tube or um, if you grow nerve cells, you can actually do things with um, the amyloid protein and you can show that it's a fantastic toxin. But if that was the case, um, Alzheimer's would be um, a three-month disease. Yeah,
2: And uh, I remember on my conversations with Achid uh, Pascal here from the CARTA Center um, showing that other primates do show signs of uh, beta uh, plaque aggregations as well, uh, but they never develop dementia. I think uh, even chimpanzees—I mean, their brains are full of that when they get old, but you don't see the signs of dementia. I—I I mean, it might be that they just die earlier, but I—I I don't know. That—that's an interesting observation. Um. There is another one that I, I, I would like to hear from you both uh, is this idea of studying resilient brains. I mean, people who are resistant or resilient to Alzheimer's, are they missing the, like, the inflammatory component or is there any genetic variant uh, signal that we can take from these people?
1: So firstly, we need to define what we mean by resilient. Um, I'll, I'll give you a few examples. Um, so there's a very large um, extended set of families Um, mainly living in Colombia, that carry a particular presenilin mutation. And on average, the age at onset across, you know, this is is hundreds and hundreds of people. The average age at onset is um, approximately 42. Um, They've been, um, you know, these families have now been studied intensively. And um, a woman who happened to be a carrier of the gene um, was found who was um, in her 60s. Um, with normal cognition. So people did a big dive into her genetics and found that she actually carried um, an unusual variant of the ApoE protein. And so maybe that was protected. Um, So maybe that's an example of how a very, very rare genetic contribution, this was extraordinarily rare, um, caused some sort of resilience. Um, The other kind of resilience people think about is um, somebody gets to the age of 90 and their identical twin um, also gets to the age of 90. And the twin develops severe Alzheimer's disease, whereas the, person, um, the other person um, has amyloid in their brain and is cognitively normal. So there's something different going on there, and there are a lot of different possibilities. Um, these could range from biological ones, like how do people respond to amyloid, to a whole bunch of developmental ones, like um, are there ways to make brain connections stronger and to develop um, <clears throat> sort of cognitive reserve, as it's been called. So it's a really complicated question and people are trying to look at different angles um, because as I say, the you know, genetic home run would be one example of trying to find one mechanism, but there may be much more complicated things at play.
2: Larry, have anything to add?
0: Uh, yeah, I was just going to add that there is there is one other rare genetic variant that clearly does confer resistance to developing Alzheimer's disease. It was found in a cohort or a fa- set of families in Iceland, where everybody has been sequenced and analyzed as near as I can tell. And it's a rare mutation in the APP gene. At the same site, as mutations that give rise to disease and what appears to be going on is the mutations that give rise to disease enhance breakdown of the APP protein ultimately leading to amyloid in a sequence of steps not not immediately and the genetic mutation that's resistant is a different change there that appears to interfere with the the breakdown of the molecule so that's a that's a very rare but interesting situation uh, the fans of the amyloid hypothesis love that observation. I think there are extenuating arguments uh, that, that make it not so clear cut, but time will tell.
2: Yeah, uh, Larry, could Favirens block increase a signaling by the lipid message PGE2 uh, that has been implicated in cognitive decline during aging? And do metabolites from the gut microbiome Alters the 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 capacity of interferon gamma response uh, in the meningeal NQ NQ cells to modify T cell apoptosis in the brain. So this is a this is cat asking a complicated question. Wow. Okay,
0: so so uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna say the following. One of the secrets to being a long-lived successful scientist is to know when to say you don't know something. And I really, I really don't know the answer to either of those questions. There there have been some experiments that have been done in the mouse that suggest that the microbiome may have an effect on the development of the mouse version of Alzheimer's disease. But remember, these are mice with lots of plaques and not necessarily, well, the mouse version of dementia. I'm not entirely sure exactly what that is. Um, and uh uh, other metabolites related to cholesterol metabolism. Uh, these are it, 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 this is in early days and unclear where that's going to lead.
2: Yeah. Um, Doug. Even though the bio, 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 biochemical pathways are connected between uh, late onset and the familial cases, uh, does that mean that these are two different diseases that should be treated with different
1: targets? Um, so again, that, it's, it, that's a great question. Um, the lumpers would say that, regardless of age at onset, genetics, and so forth, if we look at the brain of someone who dies with advanced Alzheimer's disease, they're going to have plaques and tangles. Therefore, it's one disease. Um, I think that if one is dealing with the mutation, so you know some of the um, really interesting ways to do gene editing. Um, might lead us to come up with some really interesting ways to approach people with presenilin or APP mutations and try and do something to deliver um, a vector to their brains to try and do some genetic correcting, for example. Um, There actually are some very early clinical trials looking at um, using AAV vectors to deliver APOEE2, which seems to protect um, and confer some degree of um, longevity and there have been um, a couple of preclinical studies and there actually is an early phase clinical trial looking at that sort of approach. So that would be a more personalized, I think, break it down into personalized treatment rather than um, age at onset might be something to um, think about. So the more we know about some of the drivers and the mechanisms, the more we might think of um, you know, where do we have an opportunity to tackle something super early and where would we have some different opportunities to maybe be intervening, um, later in the chain of events.
2: I, I hear you too. And, and to me, there's so many parallels with autism. I mean, the, the, the laws of synapses, and then this stratification of the different subtypes. And that's, that's more or less what happens in autism. As we define better, we, we create like an, a new syndrome. Um, Larry I have two questions about the in vitro model which I think is it's relevant. Um uh, you treated only iPS derived neurons. Uh how about microglia, astrocytes and oligodendrocytes are they included? And a related question is how robust is the iPS differentiation? Do you always have the same phenotype in vitro?
0: Yes. Okay. So so the first question would be uh, you know did we do any of our experiments in so-called co-culture models where astrocytes or microglia are uh, grown along with neurons and then neuronal behavior analyzed? Um, many of these experiments were done uh, quite early in the development of this field before astrocytes and microglia were uh, available uh, to actually do these experiments. Um, There's been some efforts to do these sorts of things, but to be honest, I think simple co-culture experiments are going to be completely supplanted by organoid experiments. With, of course, the caveat that while astrocytes are derived from the same lineage as neurons, microglia in essence come from a blood forming lineage and so are completely uh, separate uh, and then would have to be Introduced into organoids in some uh, more controlled fashion. Uh, The consistency, uh, we uh, generally in the experiments I talked about use uh, a method called uh, fluorescence activated cell sorting to allow us to purify neurons to near homogeneity. And so the cultures were usually done uh, uh, with purified neurons. Uh, that actually helps quite a bit with reproducibility over the the, the data sets. Uh, but boy, there's a lot more to be done in these systems.
2: Uh, someone asked if uh, the data with uh, the genetic cases could, could, could be the same as uh, on the sporadic cases. But I guess, I mean, just we, we need to test, right? I mean, if the drug will work on uh, a more complex system.
0: Absolutely, it's a great question. It's something that plague all of us in this field. A lot of the work is done with the genetic mutations because they're much more straightforward to study. They're homogeneous; you don't have as much variability. And you know, when we've made neurons that carry, you know, that were made from skin cells of people who have sporadic disease, there's quite a bit of variability in the in the biochemical behavior. And it's going to take large numbers of different uh, types, different genetic types of neurons and glia to really understand how that plays out in the behavior uh, in these systems. And that, that work just needs to be done. We're not there yet. Nobody is.
2: I have another epidemiological question that you might know, because um, if seems to be also used on HIV field and uh, people with HIV sometimes develop dementia, are the population taking these drugs Protected somehow? Do we uh, know that? Boy, or...
0: great question. I don't know the answer to that. Um, I should I should actually hit the literature on that one
1: and find out. Good good point. Uh, I mean, I I, um, I can comment a little, and that is that. Firstly, HIV dementia um, really existed before there was effective um, antiviral therapy, and fluorid dementia is really unusual in people who um, you know consistently take. Um, their antiretroviral drugs. There are some more subtle cognitive changes, and, you know, that's being studied um, quite intensively. Um, But the era of, you know, rampant HIV dementia, at least in, you know, well-developed countries where um, the antivirals are um, given out systematically, um, seems to have disappeared. Um, I mean, an interesting question is, do people with HIV have an increased risk of Alzheimer's disease? And again, the studies haven't been done yet. Um, The survivors of the HIV epidemic who have had successful treatments, some of them are getting into their late 60s and 70s, but it may not be enough to do a really comprehensive study of um, Alzheimer's at this stage.
2: Um, Another clinical question is, uh, how similar are those uh, dementia-related or neurodegeneration diseases um, are they really different diseases or they, they share some of the biochemical pathways or neuronal degeneration? I mean, what, what, what would you say here?
1: Um, so, I mean, we, we see different, um, let's call them tombstone proteins if we're going to be um, derogatory in a number of disorders. So Alzheimer's is amyloid and tau. Parkinson's and DLB is alpha-synuclein. Um, some of the frontotemporal dimensions are TDP-43, um, and just because we're seeing different markers does this mean that these are all radically different diseases or other commonalities. So th- there's synaptic loss in all of them, but I don't know if that's, you know, is a common enough finding. I think some of the interesting commonalities have to do with um, microglial and neuroinflammatory responses, which seem to sort of occur to some extent across these diseases, maybe some shades of difference. And then um, there are some hints of um, autophagy and lysosomal pathways that, um, again, may be altered, but for different reasons um, across some of these diseases. But it is hard. I I mean, at the moment, I think we have better reasons to split them than to lump them.
2: Um, Is there any support for the pathogen theory being the initiating factor of Alzheimer's? Do we have any evidence for that?
1: Um, so, th- again, that's a very complicated question. Um, there are different kinds of pathogens, and there have been some very far-fetched claims about infectious etiologies of Alzheimer's, ranging from people who claimed they could see spirochetes in some very badly silver-stained brains way back when. Um, there's a you know, burgeoning literature, and there are some fans of um, herpes viruses, um, HSV and, and um and um, some of the herpes family, which can accumulate and go latent and dormant in neurons. Um, And there isn't really an absolutely compelling answer. I'd say people are, um, I think the majority of people um, say that there is not super strong evidence that these are causative.
2: Uh, Larry, in your opinion, how good are the lps induce inflammation in modeling the neuroinflammation in Alzheimer's?
0: That's a very interesting question.
2: Um, you know, I, I, I think that
0: the way I would answer it is to say we really aren't clear on what the inflammatory triggers are in any of the neurodegenerative diseases. I think Doug mentioned in passing that pretty much any neurodegenerative disease you look at regardless of what part of the brain it affects, they all lead to astrocytic activation, microglial activation, their they're signs of inflammation. I, I don't know of any evidence one way or another as to whether the LPS pathway in in these cells is uh, similar to the pathway of uh, activation in the actual disease. And I, I don't think anybody really knows what the inflammatory uh, initiators are.
2: I agree. Um, another question for you, Larry: um, Is there any correlation between two four hydroxylase variants and AD risk reported?
0: Wow, I don't know that one, Doug. Do you?
1: I I don't.
2: Okay.
0: I mean, I'll just mention that you know, there's a, there's a you know, there's a list of ten genes where variants have the biggest impact. As far as I know, two-hor hydroxylase is not among that list. There's also a list of a hundred, and I couldn't swear that it's not on that list of a hundred, but it's certainly not not among the list of the highest uh, impact. But but the genetic variants you find. Are you know still in the population after they've gone through all sorts of natural selection, and they're not really a random set of variants. And so it's a little hard to to suss that one out cleanly. It doesn't mean that a variant couldn't, but it may not occur in the population for other reasons. So hard to say.
2: Um. So any other comment on the toxicity of the beta amyloid? Uh, Entangles on neuronal cells, um, and, and someone is giving an example of the alpha synuclein in Parkinson, where we know more or less about the toxicity. What about in human neurons in Alzheimer's disease? Well,
0: I think that's that's where some of the rubber meets the road on what's really toxic in Alzheimer's disease, uh, with respect to the pathologies. You know, Doug Doug just mentioned you know one of the old uh, jokes which is that, you know, the plaques are tombstones, not uh, guns, you might say. Um, There's evidence of amyloid toxicity in some experiments and not others. The experiments that have the greatest toxicity are done at doses that are way, way unreasonable uh, relative to how these things would have to act biologically. Um... Uh, changes in tau however th- those could well be very straightforwardly neurotoxic tau itself is a regulator of movement along microtubules in axons that that's its day job and if if you if you interfere with its ability to do that properly you will probably get neuronal abnormalities because you'll get changes in the movement pathways between the cell body and the uh, uh, end of the axon at the synapse.
2: Um, I, I, I'm checking the time. I think we are approaching the end, but I, I, I want you guys to answer uh, two questions that are related that I save it to the end. The question is, uh, how many years away are we from having like a sensitive diagnostic panel, a blood test that we can do it early in life? And the related question is, what would be the implications of having such a screening in early life? And I, I, I think I mean ethical implications here.
1: <laughs> right. So, so um, sometimes um, you know, you, um, things can have unintended consequences. Um, the, the biomarker data on plasma, you know, and these other markers is really incredibly exciting. And, uh, you know, there probably are 40 or 50 publications in the last year and almost nothing meaningful before then. Um, So it looks like we could use plasma biomarkers um, in people who have symptoms um, to give us a reasonably good idea, at least at the MCI stage, definitely at the dementia stage, that um, there could very well be an Alzheimer process going on. Um, do we want to, or do we want to do anything in pre-symptomatic people? And I think it's really difficult. I think in the absence of having a treatment, you know, even if you could get genetic testing done and you had something um, scored out that told you you have a three times lifetime risk of Alzheimer's disease that is higher, three times higher than somebody else. At the moment, there's absolutely nothing to do with that information. Um, so I think um, being able to predict things is um, you know, not something that we should go into very lightly. And we need to know how good the predictors are and really whether they're going to be actionable. And, you know, if all they're going to do is give us sleepless nights and worry about things.
0: Yeah, I'll just, I'll just add to that and say that, you know, the utility of uh, prediction, you know, does help in some cases with life planning. Now, on the other hand, if you tell a 20-year-old that they've got a significant chance of developing Alzheimer's disease when they're 60, if you don't have a useful therapeutic, that is not a useful thing to tell, to tell that person, I don't think. But, you know, in, in the case of statins for cardiovascular disease, having some predictive capacity along with a very effective drug... Uh, outside the brain for cardiovascular abnormalities, that, of course, is incredibly uh, powerful. And one could see this field going in that direction, but it's not going to take only one year or two years to get there. I mean, we're still pretty far away from an effective therapeutic, especially one that would act early, I think. Uh, Doug Doug may disagree. Um, And... Uh, you know, I think it it's just going to take a, a, a huge amount more work to get to the point where, where this is useful. But, you know, if you had a really safe drug that would, you know, work at the very early stages of disease and prevent it, then, of course, that would be an incredibly powerful way to go. But, boy, we are not there.
2: And, and by the way, I think that's one of the most fascinating things is, to be able to find these very early stages using like the stem cell tools that we have uh, for things that will happen really late in life. So it seems to me like a, a, it's a catastrophic thing that we'll build it up and then at one point it crashes the system. Uh, it, it does it uh, over the years. Um, but um, I mean, uh, it, it is amazing to find, and it's not only to Alzheimer's, right? We, we hear about other conditions, late onset diseases, that seems to start even in the embryo, which is amazing. Um, All right, so I have like other questions here. Um, uh, Someone asking uh, that patients are always asking for non-prescribed medications to prevent memory loss. Um, If there is anything to support uh, any of those in in the literature and what are things that can be done specifically to prevent dementia?
1: Things that you are doing. (laughs) Um, So so, so I think if you read the advertisements and the labels very carefully, um, nothing actually says this will prevent dementia. And that's because there would be a lawsuit as a result. Um, A lot of, um, you know, I don't know, Dr. Wisbang's um, magic elixir, when you read about what the claims are, it says this may um, you know, strengthen the brain in aging or it has something that's really um, not very easy to um, directly interpret. Um, there are almost no well-conducted clinical trials. There actually have been some decent clinical trials of supplements and vitamins, all of which have been negative. Um, the you know products that are claimed to boost brain health, um, for the most part, um, haven't really been tested in a um, in an appropriate way. Um, there are a couple of things that are nudging along and look a little bit interesting, but not to a degree that I would, um, you know, start handing them out um, in great profusion to people. I mean, I, th- I think um, you know, brain health is kind of like heart health, um, doing and just looking after your body in general. So. Um, You know, not smoking and um, getting some exercise, watching your sleep, getting some, um, you know, um, eating a reasonable diet. There's some evidence for a Mediterranean diet. I mean, I think some of these are reasonably basic kinds of things and they don't sound like much, but they actually aren't always so easy um, for all of us to stick to virtuously. Um, So for now, I think that that would just be the um, absolute core while we wait for um, real targeted treatments to come along. Larry, any comment on this one?
0: Uh, I believe in the health benefits of exercise and I, and I don't take any of those off the shelf things. So, you know, I'm voting with my feet for what it's worth.
2: <laughs> Good. Um, chronic traumatic encephalopathy with dementia, Uh, How that related to Alzheimer's? Is there a a role for that in Alzheimer's?
1: Um, Criotetic encephalopathy has gotten a lot of publicity from two areas. The one is the um, retired NFL players and um, former boxers who would be uh, the largest um, contributors to this type of literature. And so the interesting thing in CTE is there are tangles and they look like the exact same kinds of tangles that we see in Alzheimer's disease except that they have a different distribution in the brain um, and there is not necessarily amyloid presence so something related to the chronic repetitive traumas is setting up the development of tangles um, whether these tangles spread and progress and trigger things is very difficult to be sure about and very difficult to um, to model Um, But in principle, um, you know, something that might be used in a treatment trial for um, tangles in Alzheimer's could in theory be used for a treatment trial in CTE, except I don't know that we could round up enough people to do a treatment trial in CTE because we really don't know who is at definite risk um, right now. Um, So the other area that got a lot of attention are people um, who had shock blast. Um, type TBI exposures um, during the um, various Gulf Wars. And it's not clear that this is the same pathology. It's not clear that they get the same kind of tau pathology. They do get some other things happening with neuroinflammation and so forth. Um, But it's not clear that these have super common features. What we don't know is, again, because um, folks who were exposed are too young, is where the people who were exposed to some of these um, you know, shock waves and um, some of the Gulf War exposures, whether that might somehow maybe increase the risk of Alzheimer's in late life.
2: Got it. Uh, someone is asking to clarify the results of uh, aducanumadi, which seems to be confusing regarding effectiveness. Um,
1: Okay, so aducanumab was one of the antibodies that I mentioned um, with regards to being able to bind to amyloid and help to remove it from the brain. Um, Different doses of aducanumab were studied in different um, trials. And in general, the finding, which isn't too surprising, is that the higher the dose, the more effective it was at removing amyloid. And so there was a dose of um, a 10 milligram per kilogram dose was used. And, um, this in the clinical trials seemed to be the most effective at removing amyloid. And it seemed to be the one that was more likely to show some sort of clinical signal. Um, it turned out in these trials, there was a potential downside. And that is that, um, one thing we haven't talked about is that amyloid can also deposit in blood vessels in the brain. And sometimes. Um, as the amyloid is removed, it um, maybe does some damage to blood vessels or the antibody binds to the vascular amyloid. And there can be some degree of local bleeding and inflammation in the brain. Um, In the clinical trials, we've sort of learned how to manage this, um, but it is a little bit of a limitation in terms of how high we can dose. Um, I mean, I think that the, you know, the final word obviously isn't out on antibodies and removing amyloid. And I think that now that we have the possibility of four or five different antibodies out there in trials that all maybe can do this, um, it will be possible to explore whether whether this is helpful and how helpful it is. All right. We have no more
2: questions. Um, So I think this is a very nasty condition, uh, horrible for the families. I'm so glad to hear uh, on the progress here. Larry, we need to take this drug to the clinical trials. (laughs) This is so important. Doug Doug Uh, and I I I are working on this. Yep. And I'm glad to hear UCSD is moving with another clinical trial. I think BDNF, kind of gene therapy approach with Mark uh, Tuzinski. So this is always good news. Um, So, yeah, I'm I'm just hoping for a bright future here for those families. I wonder if any of you has uh, any last word?
0: What you need is lots of shots on goal.
1: Absolutely. The more, you know, um, the the cancer field, um, people point to lots of therapeutic breakthroughs, but in fact, there were thousands of cancer clinical trials. Um, At the moment, the Alzheimer clinical trials barely make the hundreds. And so we just have to keep going. And as long as the ideas are good, and we know how to identify what we think we're doing, then a trial is worthwhile.
2: And I'm, I'm very happy to see that SIRM is really committed with the neurological conditions as well. So this is also good news, not only for California, but uh, for everybody. All right. So um, if no further comments, I think we, we will stop here. Uh, thanks, Larry. Thanks, Doug. Uh, and I hope you all enjoy